Cricket ACT acknowledges the Ngunnawal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet and play, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal nation, both past and present. We also value the contribution that other diverse cultures, identities and lifestyles make to our region, which ultimately enhances the richness of our society and cricket community. G'day all, Robbie McKinlay here from Glory Days Podcast and welcome to episode three of a look back on the 100 years of cricket in the ACT. In this episode, we take a look at the period from the mid-1960s to the end of the 1970s where Marnica Oval was becoming a destination place for top-level cricket. None bigger than the emergence of World Series cricket in the late 70s. World Series cricket proved to be one of the biggest game changers in the history of cricket in Australia and the world. The seventh Prime Minister's 11 game was played on December the 17th, 1965, when the touring MCC side, led by Captain Mike Smith, defeated the locals by two wickets in a very entertaining game after Robert Menzies' Prime Minister's 11 had made seven for 288. Top scorer for the visitors was Jeff Boycott, who was run out for 95, while for Menzies' team, a young Paul Sheen made 79 and veteran Jimmy Burke made 60. This was to be the last Prime Minister's 11 fixture for 18 years, with Robert Menzies' retirement from Parliament in January 1966 also meaning the finish of the popular matches. Canberra, January 20, 1966. A day of drama, a day on which the Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies, announces his retirement after an unprecedented 16 consecutive years in office. Previously, while the Prime Minister's 11 matches were being played, the Australian Cricket Board would not allocate any other matches in Canberra against touring teams. However, with Menzies retiring in 1966, the following month, Alan Barnes, the Secretary of the New South Wales Cricket Association and also at the time Secretary of the Australian Cricket Board, advised ACT Cricket Association that he would like to see some serious matches played in Canberra. The first serious match was a one-day game between Southern New South Wales and the touring Indian team led by the Nawab of Patauti at Manika on February 1, 1968. The match produced the hottest day in Canberra for three decades, with the mercury reaching 42.2 degrees Celsius. Despite the heat, 2,000 people attended and watched India successfully chase down the southern New South Wales score of 7 for 223 for the loss of five wickets. The highlight of the match was a brilliant century from Kingston's Ian Canny, who retired on 101. It was the first ever century by a local player against a touring team. Ainsley's Kevin McCarty was captain of the Southern New South Wales side and was one of eight ACT Cricket Association players selected. In January 1970, New Zealand played against the Southern New South Wales side led by Graham Smith at Marnica Oval over two days. The result was a major shock with the Southern New South Wales side chasing down the Kiwis' score of seven for 274 for the loss of five wickets, then declaring. It was the first time a local team had bettered the first inning score of a touring team. Ian Lewis, 60, and Stuart Webster, 59, top scored for the home side. Webster went on to play for New South Wales on 23 occasions. The Kiwis were a strong side with Glenn Turner, Bevan Congdon, Ken Wadsworth, Dale Hadley, 
and Headley Howarth amongst the side. The match was played in between the New Zealanders' tour matches against Victoria and New South Wales. The following year, in February 1971, the Southern New South Wales versus MCC game was washed out completely, with heavy rain leaving the Manuka Oval wicket and outfield saturated. Next season, a World Eleven team replaced South Africa, who had its tour cancelled due to the ongoing public concern at the political and social situation in South Africa. The two-day fixture was set down for Manuka Oval in January 1972. The Southern New South Wales side was captained by Kerry Owen and included eight ACT cricketers. The World Eleven was captained by Rowan Canai in place of Gary Sobers, who did not make the trip to Canberra. The first day was washed out, but the hours of day two were extended with a crowd of 5,000 on hand to watch the World Eleven bat first. Legendary South African Graham Pollock top scored with 73 in the eight for 216 declared. Leg spinner Graham Smith took three for 44 for the locals. In reply, Mark Clues top scored with 46 before being run out in a total of seven for 147 in the drawn match. Later that year, on December 12 and 13, the very first game played in Canberra by a Pakistan team was played, with the Pakistanis winning easily in front of 2,000 spectators. Kerry Owen top scored for the locals with a patient 27. Pakistan won outright, bowling the southern New South Wales side out for 129 and 84. Mushtaq Mohammed took 11 wickets for the match for Pakistan. A month later, in January 1973, the Queensland Sheffield Shield team played a one-day game against the ACT. Sam Trimble with 92, top scored in Queensland's total of 211. In reply, the ACT were bowled out for 117. Leg spinner Graham Smith was the best of the locals, taking three wickets. Later in 1973, the New Zealanders returned and in front of a small crowd of 1,000, comfortably defeated the southern New South Wales side, with Bevan Congdon 63 and Richard Hadley 41, the best of the Kiwis. Hadley took 2 for 12 off 7 overs as the locals finished 9 for 135 in reply to New Zealand's 213. The MCC were back in November 1974 with eight ACT players selected in the southern New South Wales side. Rain, however, played havoc with the MCC declaring at two for 159, David Lloyd and John Edridge both made half centuries in a century opening partnership. The match did not start till 2.20 p.m. and only after a Herculean effort by the local volunteers to dry the outfield with Hessian matting. Southern New South Wales were one for 58 when stumps were drawn. This match was notable for another reason. It was the first cricket match in Australia to be televised live in colour. The West Indies were in Canberra the following season in January 1976. And yep, you guessed it, it rained on both days of the game. However, an entertaining two days was played with over 11,000 spectators attending across the days. Viv Richards blasted 93 and Lawrence Rose 62 as the West Indies declared at five for 257. The local lads made a good fist of their first innings, finishing seven for 219 at stumps on day two with Wilf Dooley top scoring with 64. Dooley was described before the game as a left-handed shearer and a right-handed batsman. 
The ACT side also made a trip to Devonport in January 1977, playing Tasmania in a three-day game. Tasmania had just been granted admission into the Sheffield Shield season for the following year and took the game very seriously. ACT batted first and made 210, with Steve Haynes top scoring with 51. Tasmania replied with 362. Dean Moore was the pick of the bowlers with four for 83. ACT made 183 in the second innings with Cole Rowe top scoring with 49. Tasmania did not lose a wicket in chasing the 33 required for outright victory. In 1978, India played in January against ACT and districts with seven ACT players in the team. While later that year, England played a one-day game against another composite side of ACT cricketers and associations from the Southern Zone. An England under-19 team, managed by former England captain Freddie Brown, played a three-day game against ACT at Marnica Oval, with the locals taking first-innings points in a low-scoring game. So from 1968 to 1980, 11 international teams played in Canberra, MCC in 1971, 74 and 1978, India, New Zealand and the West Indies all came twice and a World Eleven and a Pakistan side both played in 1972. The Queensland Sheffield Shield team also visited the capital in 1973. The New South Wales side played its first ever first-class game at Manuka Oval against Pakistan in March 1979. The game was scheduled as a four-day match, but it was all in vain. Pakistan batted first and was four for 53 after two and a half hours play, and then it rained. Canberra had gone 119 days without a shower, and it rained for two days. On the third day, it was agreed to abandon the four-day match and play a one-day match on the scheduled day four. 3,000 spectators attended on day one, while 1,233 watched the one-day match with Pakistan winning by 12 runs. Lily's pounding down like a machine. Pascal's making divots in the green. The other big deal that found its way to Canberra was the World Series Cricket, a commercial professional cricket competition staged between 1977 and 1979, which was organised by Kerry Packer and his Australian television Nine Network. It was the first summer of World Series cricket. The controversy raged, then died. Three ultimate cricket teams, Australia, the West Indies and the world, battling for supremacy. More than anything else, the summer of 77-78 will be remembered as the summer when the lights came on. Nighttime cricket, what a concept, and what an unqualified success it's turned out to be. It was the summer we saw the white ball for the first time. The critics scoffed, but the players loved it. And the world knocked us off in the final of the Country Cup, a gruelling 17-match tour that took all three teams to Canberra and country centres in three states. World Series cricket ran in commercial competition to established international cricket. World Series cricket drastically changed the nature of cricket and its influence continues to be felt today. Canberra hosted three matches, including the final of the World Country Cup between World Eleven and an Australian Eleven, featuring some of the best in world cricket, including Barry Richards, Imran Khan, Tony Gregg, John Snow for the World Eleven, Greg Chappell, Rod Marsh and Dennis Lilly for the Australians. 
The World Eleven batted first and made 253, with the Aussies falling well short, all out 168. There was a bit happening in and around club cricket at all levels, as Bruce Dockrell explains. The composition of the senior grades of uh, the ACTCA competition at the end of the 60s bore little resemblance to the competition at the beginning of the decade. Several non-district clubs were permitted to enter teams into third grade, and a sub-district competition was conducted in the early 60s. Both uh, northern suburbs and the uh, Australian National University, or ANU as we uh, refer to it generally, were admitted into A grade for the 1963-64 season, joining Ainsley, Kingston, Marnica, Northbourne, Queenbean and Turner clubs. Woden entered a team in first and second grade in 1965, and from the following year entered teams in all four grades. Once these clubs became established in their districts, they fared very well. Worden had a team in the finals in all three grades in 1966-67. The club championships in 1966-67, 67-68 and 68-69 were won by Woden, ANU and Northern Suburbs respectively. Northern Suburbs won the first grade premiership in 1967-68 and 1968-69. Woden won the second grade premiership in 1967-68 and ANU finished third second and second in first grade in those three years. So Bruce, while the new clubs had made a good start, it was not the same for a couple of the older clubs. Robbie, while the new clubs were prospering, some of the established older clubs, particularly Marnica and Kingston, who drew their players from old established suburbs, were struggling with playing members on the decline compared to the growth in the northern suburbs of Canberra. Northbourne continued its success from previously mentioned in episode two podcast, when it won the Premiership in 1965-66 and 1966-67 to make it four in a row. Northern Suburbs won the final two grand finals of the 60s decade before the competition structure was to change. The 1969-70 season brought about a significant change in the makeup of the senior grade competition. It did not happen overnight as concerns with clubs like Kingston and Marnica to survive on their own had been on the agenda of the association for several years. The association considered amalgamating both clubs in 1965, but decided against it then. But by 1967, it was obvious to even the most ardent and loyal Marnica and Kingston supporters that something had to be done. In fact, Bruce, I believe you had a first-hand experience of the merger. I came to Canberra in early 1969 with a government move, and uh, being a young guy, I was put into a uh, government hostel, which happened to be in the Marnica area, so I played my... uh, first few games uh, at the end of the 1968-69 season with Marnica Club. And of course, uh, the next season, uh, there were the changes made and introduced, and uh, Marnica and Kingston were combined to form East Canberra. We had a a fair bit of success. You know, there were players from both clubs uh, brought together, and we had a very good first-grade side. And in fact, in 69-70, we won the uh, second-grade premiership. It was called East Canberra, I guess, because at the time, uh, really based around the Kingston, uh, Marnica uh, suburbs, and they were probably the most easterly part of uh, of Canberra. Now, Bruce, following on from that, what steps were put in place uh, in and around these changes? The association set up a committee to examine uh, the need for some degree of amalgamation between existing adjoining clubs to uh, permit stable and constructive cricket development over the next decade. This committee was set up quite early or in the mid-60s. 
with a view to determining the maximum number of district clubs to be established eventually by the association to admit the proper conduct of inter-club competition in three or more grades in Canberra and Queanbeyan over the next decade at least was a, uh, an objective of this committee. The committee submitted its recommendations in August 1968. Four months later, the association grasped the nettle and decided to amalgamate Kingston and Marnica. It also decided that the northern suburbs Ainsley, Turner and Northbourne should be amalgamated to form two clubs to service the northern suburbs, City Club, North Canberra. The new club to serve the southern suburbs and the two clubs to ser- serve the northern suburbs would be expected to enter four teams in the ACTCA to take effect from the 70-71 season. However, due to the population and growth boost of Canberra, it was fast-tracked to commence ahead of the 1969-70 season in four grade. The new club that was to replace Minor King- Kingston was to be known as East Canberra. A new club serving the central city and the inner northern suburbs was to be named City, and the northern suburbs was retained as the name of the other club serving the other northern suburbs. Two clubs would serve the Woden Valley. South Woden, which included many members of the former Woden Club, was formed to serve the area south of Pine Marsh Drive. Western District was the name given to the club formed in Belconnen. ANU and Queenbian were not affected by the changes. The ACTCA competition team structure did not change for the next 10 years. A fifth grade competition was introduced in 1972-73 until the association decided in 1975-76 that the competition would be reduced to three grades to improve the standard of the grades and reduce the difficulty some clubs were experiencing in filling five teams each week. So Bruce, uh, late in the 70s, there was to be more change, I believe. Yes, uh, Robbie, in 1978, when the sub-district competition was no longer part of the ACTCA responsibilities, the fourth grade was re-established. Ginandera and Western Creek clubs were admitted to the third and fourth grades, creating a competition between 10 clubs. The following year, both clubs were accepted into all four grades. The admission of the two new clubs had been forecast for some years. While they had no experience in first grade competition, they had fielded teams in sub-district and junior grades for six years and had built up a strong club organisation in that time. In their last season before being accepted into all grades of the ACTCA, both Ginandera and Western Creek had strong playing numbers at senior and junior levels in the sub-district competition. Ginandera had six senior teams and 18 junior teams, while Western Creek had six senior and 15 junior teams. So there was to be more change to the lower level competitions around the naming and the operational side of things. Yes, the sub-district competition began in 1975. It was almost an association in its own right. There were four sub-district grades by 1978 with 42 teams. It catered for the the weaker teams of the eight district clubs, for the clubs in the growing unallocated areas of Canberra, and for a number of institutions which wanted to enter a team to play regular, competitive, but but not too competitive matches. It was always intended that the sub-district competition would be administered by the association for a few years and then become a self-governing body. By 1978, the association was administering a total of 21 clubs and 66 teams in district and sub-district combined. When Ginandera and Western Creek were admitted to the ACTCA district competition in 1978-79, the other clubs that had been playing in the sub-district competition decided to establish themselves as a city and suburban cricket association. The association was given the same status as the umpires association and the schools association, 
as an affiliated body of the ACT Cricket Association. So Bruce, who were the most successful clubs in the 70s? Well, I was pleased to say that uh, East Canberra, my club, uh, was a premier team of the 70s. They played in six of the nine first grade finals, winning five of them, including four in a row between 1970-71 and uh, 1973-74. They also won the club championship twice. Uh, The most successful of the other clubs was Western District, which I also played with, uh, and they won three premierships in A grade and two club championships. Sounds like you might have been the lucky charm. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) I think I could name a few other blokes who might have been lucky. One of ACT Cricket's finest players of the current era, Ethan Bartlett, speaks about some visionary innovation for club cricket and representative opportunities. Another interesting innovation was the introduction of a twilight competition for the 76-77 season, following a successful trial game the previous season instigated by East Canberra captain coach Wayne Boardman. Taking advantage of daylight saving, he persuaded his club to arrange a match against Western District to be played on a weeknight commencing at 4.30pm. match was a thrilling contest played over 28 ball overs and was the impetus for the competition the following season. All clubs took part. Boardman persuaded business firms to donate prize money with 200 bucks to the winning team and 100 to the runner-up. In the second season, the first prize was lifted to 600, with 400 going to the other three semi-finalists. The association took over running the competition in 1980 and has continued since. See, this has now turned into the T20 comp we see today. So, Ethan, what was the snapshot of the representative cricket program available to ACT's finest in that era? Uh, The representative cricket landscape was changing with the introduction of many new competitions and carnivals across the state, and in some specific cases, regions like ACT and Southern Districts Council. The Country Committee of New South Wales CA introduced Colts Carnival, which eventually became under-23 age group, to align and conform with the Australian Cricket Board's age limit for interstate matches. The ACT opponents for the carnivals that commenced in the late 70s included Newcastle, Illawarra and South Coast. In 1967, former Australian test player Jim Burke persuaded Sydney first grade clubs to participate in a Sunday afternoon competition of equal number of overs called the Rothmans KO competition. The following year, invitations were extended to nearby country associations to enter on the proviso that they paid for all of their own travel, accommodation and shared expenses for the matches they played in. In 1973, ACT entered the competition under the same conditions. They were eliminated in the first round but made the semi-finals the year after in 1974 and received a prize of $175. ACT's request to play some of these matches in Canberra fell on deaf ears. In 1975, NSWCA finally agreed to allocate games in Canberra, but only if the Sydney club agreed to travel to Canberra and only if the ACTCA agreed to pay the cost of travel. It was not considered to be a very generous offer. Yeah, Canberra also played in the Tui's Cup match against Goulburn each year from 1977. In the ACT team in that first match were test cricketers Alan Turner, Steve Rickson and Peter Tui, while for Goulburn they had Australian test captain Bob Simpson and two former ACT players, Stuart Webster and Mark Clues. The matches were alternated between Canberra and Goulburn and before the matches the interstate cricketers would conduct coaching clinics for local youngsters, usually the 17-year-olds. I was lucky enough to be involved in some of these games later in life, so it was a good initiative. Senior cricket participation in Canberra was very strong in the 70s and a lot of this can be attributed to the previous decade as current cricket ACT Youth Pathways coach Michael Minns explains. 
An outstanding success of the association activities in the 60s was the junior cricket program. In the late 50s, there was about a dozen teams playing in two divisions of underage competition. Ten years later, this had increased to 80 teams playing in 11 divisions, not dissimilar to the growth that we've seen in female cricket over the last decade. The remarkable development of the junior competition was put down to the fortunate coincidence of three factors. Firstly, the enthusiasm of the junior committee, led by its secretary, C.T. Nicholas. Two, the rapid population increase of Canberra brought a lot of family men transferred from Melbourne as the public service moved to Canberra. These family-oriented men sought the same advantages for their families as they enjoyed in Melbourne. And lastly, the contribution of the men who acted as the managers of the junior teams, often being fathers of boys playing and playing senior cricket themselves. They helped with coaching, transport and umpiring, or scoring of matches. Most importantly, they brought a common-sense approach to the playing of the game with a flexible approach to rules and eligibility. Once again, we've seen that over the last decade or so with the advent of the junior formats into the junior cricket pathway. So, Minty, the actual the, the structure and flexibility of the competition, in fact, proved a masterstroke. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think at the time it was uh, the looseness of the arrangement seemed a bit strange to some officials. As we know, there's a lot of traditionalists uh, in cricket, but what it did do is it really increased the enjoyment and encouraged more uh, young boys at the time, as it were, to play. And I think what we're seeing here, especially in cricket ACT with their stages, not ages approach, is probably a revisiting of, of a concept that was born 50 or 60 years ago with some of that flexibility and encouragement for young players. Another change to the landscape of cricket in the ACT was coaching. While the association since taking over junior cricket in 1953 had always had in mind junior coaching, what it hadn't done is really thought about the necessity to have senior coaching and, and developing players of a more mature age bracket. This all changed when Queanbeyan Cricket Club appointed Mel Johnson as a professional coach in 1967. Johnson moved to Queanbeyan when he was appointed to a teaching position at the Canberra Grammar School after having played first grade in Brisbane. He later became a very accomplished umpire at test and first class level. So, Michael, uh, Johnson returned home to Brisbane, but Queanbeyan made the next move in another significant appointment. That's right, Robbie. In, in 1971, they actually appointed the first professional coach, uh, certainly on record in uh, this competition here, and that was Ray Flockton. Uh, he was appointed in 1971. Um, so Ray notably played 32 Sheffield Shield matches for New South Wales, uh, including a top score of 264 not out. Uh, he was a qualified umpire. Um, and at age 41, when he was appointed, he was appointed on a five-year uh, term for a four-figure sum uh, paid by the Queanbeyan Leagues Club. So he works 20 hours per week there in summer, and the rest was coaching the club at Queanbeyan. Then, of course, he got involved with the ACT Cricket Association as well, and their coach at the time, George Connolly. That's right, he did. Uh, and along with legendary New South Wales coach Peter Spence, they instigated the inaugural coaching courses in Canberra um, for attendees to gain uh, intermediate coaching certificates. So what they look like now, obviously, it's it's um, changed over the course of all of Cricket Australia. They've got their community, uh, community coaching uh, as well as their Level 2 and Level 3 representative coaching courses. And, um, of course, a lot of them then went on, they did those second courses. And they had some good financial backing at the time. And, of course, as you mentioned, um, that's where Peter Spence was heavily involved with the Rothmans National Sports Foundation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and as a thank you to that funding, 43 officials and players attended the two courses uh, and they qualified at one or two more levels of competence. Um, priority places in the courses were given to current aspiring coaches uh, of junior cricket. By the mid-70s, um, a lot of the other clubs had made the move as well. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I think across the competition, we saw that most uh, most clubs had appointed either a coach or a captain coach, which was probably more popular at the time. And we still see a little bit of that uh, in regional cricket now. And um, the going rate uh, in 1976 was about $250 per season. So definitely big bucks. And of course, then a lot of the clubs started looking for the overseas coach. Yeah, that's exactly right. Again, a trend that we're seeing um, in the modern day as well. So it's funny how many parallels we've got uh, in the early uh, 2020s versus what we had in the 60s and 70s. So what was happening in women's cricket during this era? Well, to find out, I caught up with current ACT Meteors Women's National Cricket League opening bowler, Zoe Cook. The uh, Women's Cricket Association, which was quite active in the 1930s, was actually revived in 1971. Early in that year, two teams were formed and regular competition began in 1971-72 season. Um, Early in 1977, a small group of women who had previously played women's cricket in other state competitions got together to form an association to organise women's cricket competition locally. Um, Their objective was to develop a Canberra team to the stage of participating as a separate state at the national championships. Um, And as such, the ACT Women's Cricket Association was formed Um, With the support from ACTCA and the ACT Sports Council, a six-team competition commenced in 1977-78 season. Um, So with some teams having difficulty in retaining players, uh, the season ended with four teams. But the following season proved to be much better with um, seven teams competing in that competition. Uh, Interest in training also increased when an ACT team was invited to participate on a non-competitive basis in the 1978-79 National Championships in Sydney. Um, But this representation was raised to full participation the following year. So who were some of the leading players in this era? Dean Moore was an incredibly accurate opening bowler who took 644 wickets in his 13 seasons in the ACT Cricket Association. He played in eight premierships, four at East Canberra, three at West, and one in his final year at Northern Suburbs. He captained the ACT side against several touring teams. Moore reflects back on that time of dominance. When I finished uni in Melbourne, uh, I joined the Department of Trade and Industry in Melbourne, and after working in the regional office for a while, I realised that probably going to head office in Canberra was the way to go. We packed up and headed off into the unknown. How did you choose your first cricket club? Well, in those days, you were zoned. The powers that be in the department in Canberra organised a rental house for me in Deakin, which was zoned to East Canberra. And uh, just so happened that in the same street, um, Greg Lord, who was the secretary of the ACTCA at the time and, and secretary of East Club, one of the great things, I think, from, from going from Melbourne to Canberra, the cricket team that I played with had people from all different walks of life. So we weren't talking um, public service garbage all the time. You were having fun and went from everything from lawyers to brickies and all, everything in between. And fortunate that in the, in the four years that I played with Easts, um, we won the first First four years I was there, we won the flag each year. Winning's, winning's fun. 
no doubt about that. And, of course, in that time, uh, Dean, you played with and against a lot of good cricketers. Kerry Owen was the captain of Easts for those four flags. Kerry was a high scorer consistently, had been a, a good grade cricketer in Sydney before. He also played um, baseball in the Claxton Shield for New South Wales, so he was a you know, versatile fieldsman as well. But we had a, a lot of good players at Easts. I mean, winning just doesn't come from from, uh, you know, without some talent to back it up. And my um, co-opening bowler, Wayne Boardman, was, was a very good player as, as well. Well, he, he was an all-rounder too. He was a good left-hand bat. Terry Booth, who was a wicketkeeper for some of those years and also a very tough batsman, hard to get out. We had Alan Middleton, who was uh, an off-spinner. Kerry is is one, and he he was captain of the ACT um, representative side at the same time. Graham Smith, of course, the leg spinner who played mainly for North. Uh, his record's amazing. He wasn't a big spinner of the ball, but he was extremely accurate. And he could drop the ball on a length. And what I'm aware of of his statistics, probably his best um, years were. Maybe a bit before me, but he, he certainly had longevity. Oh, some other players. Neil Bolger, um, who played for Queenmean, was a really talented, hard-hitting batsman and um, left-arm medium. He'd swing the ball around. The young guy coming on the scene then, I think Greg Irvine, might have been his best days after I finished. When I was at West, Russell Rogers played great cricket in Sydney before he came to Canberra. Colin Rowe, really hard-hitting batsman and wicketkeeper. Tony Irvin, Barry Andrews and David Munt were the, the pair that opened the batting and blunted a lot of attacks. Andy McDonald um, opened the bowling with me and on his day was pretty quick and, and uh, pretty nasty too. So there's a lot of players. I, I mean, I'd give, you know, heaps of them a disservice if I... if I don't mention them, but, you know, there's some that sort of spring to mind straight away. Did you play much against Ian Canny, Dean? Yeah, I, I did a bit. I think Ian, probably his most successful years, it might have been just before I got there. I know everyone raved about his century that he made against India when they toured. And uh, he was a very elegant, stylish batsman. I think sort of later on his, his figures... Um, probably don't sort of support his talent as much as they could have. You've got to remember, too, that in those days in Canberra, the grounds were very slow. The pitches generally were OK, probably a bit dead sometimes, which was frustrating. One of the successes of Easts was that we had Marnica as our home ground, so you had a bit of pace in the track and a bit of bounce. The grass was simply too long. I, I just think, you know, people were not getting value for their shots was almost a stalemate on some of those situations. Playing and captaining against some of the best cricketers in the world must have been a massive highlight for you. It was probably more so on reflection than at the time. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I mean, opening the bowling against um, Desi Haynes and Gordon Greenwich was a bit daunting. But we did, we did, uh, and, and walking out the toss with Clive Lloyd, I mean, that was something Australia at the time. But I, I remember we played them in a 50-over game. They were beating Australia in the same format. 
I'm opening the bowling. We'll see how we go. And I bowl my 10 out um, rather than come back and be a bit stiff. So I, I got none for 28 off 10. I think they made oh, 330 or something like that. So the other bowlers um, probably didn't enjoy it as much as I did. Well, that's the captain's prerogative, isn't it, Dean? Well, it was, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Dean, how would you describe yourself as a cricketer? Very competitive. I think I grew up in a cricket-mad family. Uh, My grandfather was a very good cricketer. He played against uh, Englishmen in the 1920s in Bendigo and got wickets bowling left-arm wristies. My dad was a good cricketer, although he was, his career was curtailed by the Second World War. My brother played district cricket for Melbourne when he was 15. You know, you soaked up a lot of information from the, the, the players and captains that I played under in Melbourne. I think that made me, I mean, they, it was like war when you went. It wasn't just having, you know, a muck around at the park. They were deadly serious about winning games. And I think that competitiveness um, rubbed off on me and I, I sort of soaked that up. And I had, I, I guess I had the ability to bowl pretty long spells accurately. And I, uh, one of the things that I did enjoy was being able to sort of work out a batsman's weakness, like studying their stance or looking at their back lift. I played around with a bit of, uh, you know, on a good day I could, I could swing the outswinger. Some days it wouldn't go, other days it was beautiful. If you, you know, get it in the right spot and you're moving the ball, anyone's a bit vulnerable, I think. It's all fair and love and war, mate. Some of the stats on players mentioned by Dean Moore include Graham Smith, a right-arm leg spinner who arrived from Melbourne in 1961 and retired in 1982. In his 21 years of first grade, he took 878 wickets at an average of 11.29. On seven occasions, he was the leading wicket-taker in a season. Six occasions, he took more than 50 wickets in a season. His best season was in 1972-73 when he took 92 wickets. He twice took eight wickets in an innings and seven wickets twice. Career highlights included three wickets in 1963 against the MCC and three wickets against the World Eleven in 1972. Included in his victims were Graham Pollock and Zahir Abbas. Dean Moore in 1973-74 took 70 wickets, including eight for 17 against South Woden and eight for 80 against City. He also took seven wickets in innings on three occasions that season. That season, he and fellow opening bowler Wayne Boardman took 116 wickets between them. He captained ACT and districts against the MCC in 1979 and the West Indies in 1980. He also played against New Zealand in 1973, Pakistan 1972, and the World Eleven also in 1972. In all, he represented ACT on 28 occasions. Kerry Owen came to East Canberra from Sydney via Goulburn and his first season, 1969-70, was the leading run scorer and cricketer of the year. It was the start of a stellar 14 seasons of first grade cricket in the ACT Cricket Association. 12 with East and another two as captain coach of South Woden. He compiled 4,912 runs in that period averaging 36.6 and was four times the leading run scorer. He played in four premierships with East. Owen was one of the inaugural graduates from the coaching school in 1974. 
He was appointed ACT's assistant coach in 1975 and on the retirement of George Connolly was to become the first ACT Regional Director of Coaching in 1981. Gary Samuels had a 16-year first-grade career that netted him 506 wickets. He played seven seasons with ANU, six at Queanbeyan, and three seasons while still at school with Turner and City. His most remarkable performance came in February 1973 when playing for ANU against City. ANU were given no chance after being bowled out for just 44. No one told Gary Samuels as he took 9 for 9 in 11 overs to bowl City out for 35. The same year, he was named ACT Cricketer of the Year. His junior career playing numbers and stats were simply amazing. Among many highlights was, as a 10-year-old playing in the under-12s, he took 91 wickets at just over two runs per wicket. In his final season of under-12s, he made 103 not out and took five for nine in one match and made 113 not out and took four for six in another. He played Australian schoolboys in 1971. Ian Canney came to Canberra from Adelaide. His first grade career was from 1963 to 1981, where he played with four clubs, Kingston, Northern Suburbs, Western Districts and Ginandera. He played most of his cricket with Northern Suburbs. He was captain of Northern Suburbs back-to-back premierships in 1967-68 and 1968-69 and was twice ACT Cricket of the Year in 1967-68 and 1971-72. His finest moment was making 101 retired against the touring Indian team in 1968. Charles Morrison completed the last of his 10 years as president of the association in 1966, with Bruce Robin taking on the role for four years. Kevin McCarty was then president for five years, finishing in 1975. Charlie Berry did two terms, and then Tony Duffy started the first of his six years in 1977-78. The umpiring fraternity was still struggling with numbers to fulfil the increase in teams and matches. In the early 70s, all three grades played on turf wickets. In the late 60s, umpires were paid $4 for an all-day match and $5 for a representative match. By the end of the 70s, the fee was $12 for an afternoon match and $16 for an all-day game. In 1972-73, 15-year-old Lisa Benyon and Lynn Walker were the first female umpires to officiate in senior matches. The top-ranked umpire in this era was S.V. Smith, who umpired in six of the touring team matches against the ACT Cricket Association. As part of the podcast series, we're taking a look at the history of the current clubs in the ACT Cricket Association, with the two clubs in this episode being the Queanbeyan District Cricket Club and ANU Cricket Club. To chat about the Queanbeyan District Cricket Club, I caught up with club legend Michael Frost, the game's record hold at the club with 626 matches and still going. 354 were in first grade. He won an incredible 34 titles across all grades, including 17 in first grade. Frost represented the ACT on 70 occasions, including matches against Pakistan, New Zealand, England and second 11 cricket, as well as five Australian country championships for the ACT. And just like his own career, his beloved blue bags were the same, pretty successful. Thanks, Robbie. Yeah, and thanks for having me on. But in, interesting talking about Queenie and like, in the history of the 100 years of ACT cricket, 
We've been lucky enough to win 15 first-grade premierships or, or the Douglas Cup that it's called. Uh, in total, we've won 125 AC2 premierships across all our grades. Uh, includes a couple in the female in female cricket, and we're growing in that space. We've also won the club championship nine times, and lucky enough to win the prestigious S- SCG Cup back in 2010. We've also had across 100, our 160-year history, but 100 years in the ACT, we've had many representative players right across the spectrum, but probably our most talked about, uh, Brad Haddon obviously went on to play for Australia. Mark Higgs played for Australia A. Lee Hanson played Australia A. We've got currently Henry Hunt playing in the Australia A. M. Preston represented Australia in the women's under-23s. Lynn Cook represented Australia. Plus, we've had many players who played you know, for Australian country, state-level players, veterans cricket for Australia. We've also been lucky enough to host many fine overseas players, you know, particularly from England. And the probably the most famous two are Mike Watkinson, who went on to Captain England, and Steve O'Shaughnessy, who was a Lancashire and uh, Worcestershire player, but he also is a current county and test umpire as well. So we've been pretty lucky in that regard. Uh, Frosty, what were those early days like uh, at the start? Because as we said, Queen began the oldest club in ACT cricket. Um, what was the starting days like? Obviously, I probably wasn't around in the 1920s, but uh, <laughs> I've done a, bit, done a bit of research for for us over the over the journey. And we had some fabulous players back in the 20s. I think we entered the comp in 23, 24, and it started in 22. But we had you know, the Hinksman brothers, who were a famous cricketing family in Australia. Uh, the legend, Tom O'Connor, who represented many sports, but was a fantastic cricketer. Jack McNamara, who played 32 consecutive seasons in first grade as a keeper. Terry Freebody was a famous player. Frank Bash, Morrison, Croker, Les Wearing, the Wheeler brothers, Grubel and Strang. You know, they're, they're just some of the players that had some fantastic careers with Queemian. We, we, we're lucky enough in that sort of early period to win um, a few premierships, 27, 28, 28, 29, 35, 36, 39, 40, and 57, 58. But we had some gaps where we weren't as successful. Uh, significantly, we, we made the Queenmian Park our home back in the 20s and 30s. Uh, it was a great place to play cricket back then, apparently. Um, we added you know, second to fourth grade over the journey. We added different grades. We had, at one stage, we signed former test umpire Mel Johnson as first grade captain coach, Ray Flockton, who played for New South Wales as a captain coach. Um, you know, we had some significant players in that sort of 20s to mid-century period. I guess the great players continued after the war. But at times, as you mentioned before, senior success was a little bit hard to come by. It was, and, and like, like even the, today, you know, you, you just don't know what that recipe is to succeed. You, know, you put your juniors in place and, and you add good players to your roster and that sort of thing, but it doesn't guarantee success, and we have had some lean periods. But mid, mid-century mid to the late 20th century, so we had um, blokes like Neil Bolger turn up, and who was an amazing player, uh, the, probably the best ever Aboriginal player, Indigenous player in Australia. We had the Kelly brothers, Ian Armour, Gary Samuels came from ANU, Terry Walters, who was Doug Walters' brother, came as captain coach. We had Barry O'Connell and Wayne Campbell and Frank Hansby. And then in the 80s, we added Mark Thornton as captain coach, John Ball, uh, Peter Solway, the emergence of Peter Solway, the great, great cricketer, Michael Carruthers. Um, uh, we were lucky enough, myself and my brother played a lot of first grade games, Mark Lynch and Tony Wind, who was a fabulous AFL player as well. It changed the landscape a bit because we, we did have a lot of success, but it was on the back of you know, Ian McNamee, uh, our patron of 40 years, came on, on board and John Solway and Richard Carruthers, Greg Mann, Steve Bailey and Ray Hatch all were significant administrators. And so we got the off-field right, and it meant that we won uh, a plethora of premierships there for uh, two, four, six, I can count eight on a list here that I've got up to 91, 92 from 80. And signing those those captain coaches were critical because what meant our juniors were looked after. We moved to Freebody Oval as our home ground in that period. And then a, a moment in 1985-86, we played Ginadera in the semi-final and we scored 728, which was just unheard of. Four, 
Bedford. And one bloke, our captain coach, Mark Thornton, got out LBW to 97. So, like a significant moment in the club's history that we, we treasure. And the modern era, I guess, to, to finish the 20th century and begin the new millennium, it's been hard work, but again, a lot of good results. Yeah, correct. We had another 18, 18 to 20 year period where we, we just tried hard and we won a few like the lower level comps, but couldn't grab that first grade premiership. We attracted, you know, we had Brad Hedden come through the juniors, but he, he left when he was quite young. But Mark Higgs and Rob Regent, uh, Jason Swift, who was a Sydney bloke, Lee Hanson came, Michael O'Rourke, Adam Hedding, the Dean brothers, John Allen Blake, a couple of Queenian juniors, Valet Dukoski, Michael Suspect. Spaseski were added, Dean Solway, a bloke called Jamie Haynes, who played for Lancashire, Simon Mann, Shane McNamee, Peter Colborne, Nathan Reid, and, and then Henry Hunt turned up. So some fabulous players. And we did manage to win three premierships in 09, 10, 10, 11, 11 and 12. So sustained success wasn't always there, but we were thereabouts. So we had um, Peter Solway scored 339 in a game and John O'Dea 300 in a game. So we set a couple of records, but we just couldn't find the recipe to, and we're still struggling at the moment to work out how to win those consistent first grade premierships. And another thing that strikes you about the club, it, the hard work and excellence, not only of players, but administrators and volunteers have been recognised at the club. It has. And, and we try to balance up that on-field success. And we, whilst we crave first grade success, we're equally happy that our lower grades are successful, you know, we're winning 125 premierships. But it's on the back of hard work off the field. Um, we, we were lucky in 2013 that we managed to build a, a really fabulous pavilion in between our two ovals. And we've named that at the end, McNamee Pavilion, after his significant contribution both as patron but as on uh, president, former president. And we've got a really great base there. We've also uh, named our one of our ovals the Neil Bolger Oval, which is an amazing recognises an amazing contribution of one of the great Indigenous players. Brad Haddon Oval in Town Park was named a few years ago in honour of Brad and we've called our scoreboard the Peter Solway scoreboard just in recognition of uh, he's probably the best top order batsman ever to play in Canberra and uh, not only does he coach our club, he coaches our juniors and still plays third grade and I think he's won about 40 premierships so he's a very revered player so to recognise those four or five people in that way is just a real honour for our club. Next up, ANU Cricket Club legend Murray Radcliffe spoke about his club since foundation in 1962. I've been involved with the club since 1980, so uh, when you say it's been pretty successful, it's been a long time as well. The club has uh, had some success, uh, winning a couple of two-day premierships and a couple of one-day premierships in first grade, as well as other premierships through the grades. The ANU Cricket Club since uh, we started in first grade in 1963-1964. Who were some of the big performers in that time? Clearly, the one that first comes to mind is Brad Haddon. Brad has played with with another club in Canberra, but uh, he did play uh, a bit of first grade with ANU uh, for three or four years before he headed off to Sydney. He was terrific with the team and they won a premiership or two while he was there in first grade. But you can mention a couple of other people, uh, like Randall Starrs, the highest run scorer the club's ever had. People like Peter Solway and Greg Irvine were also uh, really important in the club in the in the 90s. And with the bowlers, Gary Samuels, uh, in one season took 75 wickets at about 5.7, I think it was. And Mike Howe was a left-hand orthodox bowler with a pretty wicked arm ball that is the leading first-grade wicket-taker, a lecturer at the university. In terms of Pure runs scored through the grades. Mickey Island has scored over 10,000 runs. He's played most grades. 
Uh, his father took 400 wickets or so for the club as well, so that's a pretty important family in the club's history. And Peter Foley uh, still plays, and he was playing before I arrived, uh, so he's played uh, more games than you can imagine. But he's also taken well over 1,000 wickets. Muzz, I did mention there just before about at the 40th anniversary, I thought it was a, um, the club did honour and name some legends of the club. You might just go through those for me, please. Uh, admittedly, the, this was uh, 15 years ago or so. There were 12 players announced as legends are uh, Alan Sargenton, who was a bat- batsman in the in the 60s and played in the first ever first grade game that ANU played. Gary Potts was um, another batsman, scored a lot of runs, scored a lot of runs in big games and was the first ever ANU player to get selected for the ACT. Uh, Gary Samuels, we, he was a swing bowler and was unbel- has an unbelievable grade record. Uh, after he finished at ANU, he went on and played uh, with Queanbeyan, but also played many, many games with the ACT. Greg Irvine, nearly everyone in Canberra will mention Greg Irvine as an absolute hero of cricket in Canberra. Scored thousands of runs and took hundreds and hundreds of wickets and was probably the best fielder any of us have ever seen. Uh, John Richardson, uh, captain first grade for a few years, but also was a good, solid top-order batsman. And another example of mixing uh, academic career with cricket, he went on to become the ambassador to Russia. Mike Howell, I mentioned, left-hand orthodox, university lecturer, New Zealander. Anyone who played against ANU in the 70s and 80s certainly remembered Mike. Uh, we mentioned Peter Solway, absolute legend, would have, should have played many, many games for New South Wales at least. Has captained the Australian over 50s and that's some sort of proper recognition for his ability. David Carlin was a wicketkeeper, he's a Victorian, more catches and stumpings than anyone else ANU's seen and is now the chair of the ANU Cricket Club Scholarship Committee and a significant donor to... Uh, get our cricket club scholarship up and working and and getting players to the university and to play for ANU. Graham Moray, he was a bit before me, so he was a fast bowler with a really good record. Brad Haddon, we've mentioned. um, Craig Bradley was a middle-order batsman, left-hander, scored a lot of runs, took some wickets and played a lot of games and had a great influence around the club, and I was the 12th one. We also um, named Vic Christophany as the coach of the team. Vic was around the club for 20 years or so, both as the coach and as the president of the club, and really kept the club alive during the 90s and the and the first decade of the 2000s. An absolute uh, gentleman and a genius. And since that time, Randall Starr has been added as a legend as well. Peter Solway, for example, is probably better renowned at Queanbeyan. He was uh, played for ANU for a number of years. Is still a really significant contributor to ACT cricket administration. Uh, Greg Irvine's in the same boat. GI uh, had a huge influence on ACT cricket, and you know I was I did a bit when I could, and and as well as Vic. Vic Christophany um, is is a life member of ACT as well. You can't just be a university student. You've got to have other interests in life. And I think sport plays a, a wonderful role in giving people a more rounded character that can be used as, as in their leadership and teamwork and things like that when they get into, into the world after university. And there's been unbelievable examples of that. Graham Tuckwell has contributed 
millions and millions of dollars to the university as a philanthropist. David Carlin himself is a very successful mining uh, magnate. John Richardson, I mentioned, Gary Potts, uh, senior public servants, but there's been plenty of others as well. Their life has been enriched by studying at the ANU, but also uh, partly in playing cricket with ANU where uh, you rub shoulders with some really uh, interesting people and you develop some wonderful life habits. And, of course, we mentioned Brad Haddon, who went on and played for Australia. And just Who are some of the other first-class players who have played at ANU? Uh, Willie Sheridan came up from the South Coast to play in the ACT Under-19 team and then got picked for the Australian Under-19s after a really successful carnival and went on and played Shield and one-day T20 cricket in Victoria. Uh, Stewie Carpenter played for South Australia and Western Australia. Steve O'Shaughnessy came over from England and played for ANU and Junandera for a couple of years. He had a long and successful first-class career in England, but also as a not only as a player, but then went on to be an umpire in the first-class game over there. Daniel Pascoe played for ANU and then went to Oxford University. Daniel King played a season with ANU, went on and played for Oxford. Phil Gerrans, the same, played for City, then went over and played a game for Oxford. And importantly for ANU, we've had a couple of women's team play first-class cricket in Matilda Lug and Amy Yates as well. And I would be really remiss for not mentioning Greg Badcock. Greg's been uh, heavily involved with ANU cricket and now with ACT cricket for at least 10 years. It's with people like Greg that the clubs uh, survive and uh, can contribute and be successful. And it's not just uh, winning premierships, a lot more about developing people as human beings. And I think he's played an enormous role in that. Well, that concludes episode three of a look back on the 100 years of cricket in the ACT. Next up, in episode four of our Glory Days podcast, we look back on the period between 1980 and 1995, highlighted by the return of the Prime Minister 11 matches. We hope you can join us. But for now, it's goodbye and thanks for listening.